Aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Well, welcome aboard. I'm Joe Schwartz, and uh, when I don't uh, chat with you here on Sunday afternoons, I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society. And there we have a mandate to separate sense from nonsense, myth from fact. And we have been doing that now for over uh, 22 years. And, uh, of course, uh, very challenging these days with all of the myths that are being propagated about uh, COVID-19. So there never is a dull day. As usual, uh, we're going to start out by posing a couple of questions for you to ponder and uh, hopefully come up with an answer. 514-790-0800 is the number to call. You can also text your questions, comments, answers to 514-800. All right, two questions to puzzle over. Self-heating cans of soup or coffee work by pushing a button that allows two chemicals stored in separate compartments to mix and generate heat. So that that, uh, button-like thing is on the bottom of the can. So you kind of push the bottom of the can, and then uh, two chemicals stored in separate compartments combine and generate heat. And uh, I'm sure you already guessed what that question is. What are the two chemicals that mix together in that self-heating can of soup or coffee that generate uh, the heat. All right, that's the the, uh, first question for today. The second question is, where does penicillin get its name? I mean, most of uh, you are familiar with the story of uh, Fleming's discovery of penicillin, but a little twist here, where does penicillin get its name? So those are the two questions for you to kind of puzzle over until uh, you uh, hear, you know, a little bit of the stories that I'm going to tell you, because this gives you some time to think about those questions. All right, let's get going here. With uh, Luc Montagnier, uh, Luc was a French virologist uh, who was awarded a share of the 2008 Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology. Unfortunately, he passed away on February the 8th. But Montagnier was a polarizing scientist in several different ways. The Nobel Prize that he received in medicine was for his 1983 discovery of the human immunodeficiency virus, HIV. And no question, that was certainly a landmark event. But the discovery was disputed by American biomedical researcher Robert Gallo, who claimed that It was he who had identified the virus, and that was before Montagnier had done so. This led to a long and acrimonious dispute, and it wasn't settled until, believe it or not, the intervention of President Ronald Reagan and French President Jacques Chirac. Why did they have to intervene? Because this was not only a dispute over academic credit but there was a great deal of money at stake, the money that was to be made from profits of the commercial tests that would be sold to detect the virus. 
Well, eventually it was agreed that these profits would be divided between the American and the French groups, uh, both of which had filed patents. Montagnier would be recognized as the discoverer of the HIV virus, and Gallo would get credit for demonstrating that it caused AIDS. And uh, eventually they uh, uh, made up. They actually wrote a paper together uh, for the journal Science, a very respected publication, in which they described uh, that uh, they had both contributed just about equally to the discoveries. And on receiving the uh, Nobel Prize in, in 2008, uh, Montagnier expressed surprise that Gallo had not been included as well. This battle between uh, Luc Montagnier and Robert Gallo was documented in Randy Schultz's 1987 book, And the Band Played On. Uh, that was uh, an amazing book because it described uh, the history of AIDS. It uh, described the possible role that was played by a Canadian flight attendant who spread the disease in, in North America. Uh, it also was a very political book uh, describing uh, all of the ins and outs of the disputes you know, between uh, uh, politicians about the attention that should be paid to AIDS, etc., uh, and uh, the book became a bestseller and was also made into a 1993 movie by the same title, and the band played on. And uh, the movie starred Alan Alda as uh, uh, Robert Gallo and Patrick Bachau as uh, Luc Montagnier. A number of famous personalities made cameo appearances in the film uh, to show their support for the fight against AIDS. They included uh, Lily Tomlin, Steve Martin, Richard Gere, Angelica Houston, and uh, Ian McKellen, who, of course, starred in the Lord of the Ring movies. Montagnier did not die of the Nobel disease, but he certainly suffered from it. Nobel disease, or <laughs> Nobelitis, as it is sometimes called, is the embracing of strange or scientifically unsound ideas by some Nobel Prize winners, usually well after they became famous for winning the prize. It seems that they sometimes feel that the prize has empowered them to comment on all sorts of topics, sometimes even those outside their expertise. In the case of Montagnier, the scientifically unsound idea <laughs> was uh, his bizarre support of homeopathy. In 2009, the year after he won the Nobel Prize, he stunned scientific colleagues by publishing, and that was in a journal that he himself had founded and he himself edited, which already, you know, puts a shadow over the whole thing. Anyway, he claimed that he was able to detect electromagnetic signals from water that previously had held DNA or RNA from viruses and bacteria but which had been diluted to the extent that there was nothing left. So this was a variation of the memory of water theory that, of course, had been long discredited uh, and uh, that had been pioneered by immunologist uh, Jean Benveniste in, in France and uh, was supposedly some sort of explanation for uh, the efficacy of, of homeopathy. Uh, Montagne also claimed... Uh, Autism was caused by infection, 
and could be cured by long-term antibiotic treatments. And scientists reacted with with uh, very very strong skepticism about that. Uh, from 2010 on, uh, Montagnier spent a few years working at Shanghai Jiao Tong University in China, where he said they were more open-minded about his ideas. In 2017, more than 100 members of the French Academies of Science and Medicine published an open letter condemning Montagnier for spreading dangerous health messages outside of his field of knowledge. And this was after he opposed the extension of his country's childhood vaccination program. Now, that is is really, really strange, given the fact that he was a virologist and had received a Nobel Prize in his area of specialty. Uh, But Montagnier held other bizarre views as well. He argued that diseases, including HIV and autism, could be cured by diet. And, uh, of course, he championed the anti-vax movement, especially after the COVID-19 pandemic began. He also claimed that the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, had originated in a lab experiment to combine the coronavirus and HIV. There's really no evidence for that. And he told viewers on French TV that vaccination was an enormous mistake that would promote the spread of new variants. Very interesting story, right? Because here you have someone who received a Nobel Prize, well-earned, for the discovery of the HIV uh, virus, which, of course, eventually led to, to the formulation of the antiviral medicines that today allow uh, AIDS uh, victims to, to live uh, long lives. And yet he went on uh, and uh, uh, formulated beliefs in all kinds of bizarre uh, theories. He suffered from the Nobel disease. You're uh, listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to check traffic and be right back. No answers so far to my questions about which two chemicals stored in separate compartments are mixed together to generate heat in self-heating cans of soup or coffee. And uh, the second question was, where does penicillin get its name? If you know the answer, 514-790-800, or you can text your questions, comments to 514-800, which is where I had a question about the possible new Omicron subvariant and what I know about it. Uh, I don't really know anything more about it than what you've seen in, in, in the press. Um, there are going to be variants. I mean, there's no question about that. Uh, we've already had hundreds of variants. It's just a question of whether or not they are going to be, uh, uh, you know, breathtaking, <laughs> or literally, uh, are they going to be worse than the ones that we have seen? Uh, so, no, I, I don't know anything more about this one, but but it's not surprising that there are going to be uh, new and and more uh, more variants. This past week, uh, you know, I, I often post on Facebook. Uh, it's kind of fun to do, to interact uh, with people on Facebook. And uh, I do have uh, over 30,000 followers there. Uh, I don't know how closely they, they follow, but uh, many of them do because I, you know, I get lots of comments about stuff that I, I post. 
And uh, I've learned that no matter what, uh, doesn't matter what you post, there will be some people who will disagree uh, very often in a violent fashion. I mean, I, I, I think if I propose standing out on the street corner and, and distributing $100 bills, someone would oppose that as well. Uh, however, uh, this past week, I did post something that, that received very, very little opposition, supposedly. And this was my uh, attack on Dr. Oz and his, uh, what I think is a trip down the uh, rabbit hole. And, uh, I mean, Dr. Oz, uh, of course, has been in the news many, many times over the last few years. I mean, ever since uh, Oprah kind of, you know, uh, gave him his own show and uh, became, uh, you know, a household word. Uh, but his uh, evolution has uh, really become a, a transport, transformation from a respected surgeon to, to uh, a, a terrible advocate of pseudoscience. And uh, the reason that uh, I decided to post something about this on, on Facebook is because of his slander of Dr. Fauci, who he called a petty tyrant. And then he called him cowardly for not taking the bait to get into what uh, was called a doctor-to-doctor -doctor debate. Well, of course, uh, you know, I, I think Dr. Fauci is smart enough uh, to know that uh, if you roll around uh, in the dirt with pigs, then all that happens is that you get dirty. Uh, so, you know, he, of course, didn't take uh, debate to have a debate with this uh, surgeon turned TV snake oil salesman. And while certainly Dr. Oz once may have been a competent physician, uh, when it comes to immunology or virology or epidemiology, he is just out of his league when you compare him to Dr. Fauci, who, who has been, you know, uh, a leading researcher in this area for over 50 years. I mean, in the past, Dr. Oz has championed things like energy medicine and Reiki, and he even earned the James Randi Foundation's Pegasus Award. Uh, because that recognizes great achievements in pseudoscience. And that's what energy medicine is. It, it is just pseudoscience. And then, of course, we know how he has hyped diet pills, uh, you know, on, on his show. Uh, I was particularly upset when, you know, he kept giving credence to, to mediums who claim to be able to talk to the dead. That's a, a, just an awful thing because that is is capitalizing on on people's desperation usually at a you know at a time of of, of grief and uh, it is playing around with people's memory of their beloved ones that's a terrible uh, terrible thing but and uh, then i thought that he had hit rock bottom when he began to market dr oz's homeopathic starter kit well uh, as you know uh, i've talked often about homeopathy, which is based on non-existent molecules treating existing disease, and it's just an absurd idea. Uh, but I was wrong, because maybe he didn't quite hit rock bottom with that. But he did it now, jumping into bed with uh, the nutcases at Fox to gain support for his preposterous Senate candidacy. Now, we're talking here about a man who 
testified in front of a Senate subcommittee about his antics. And boy, they just eviscerated him uh, about, you know, his promotion of, of supplements without any evidence. And this is also a man who was a subject of a study in the prestigious British Medical Journal that found that 15% of his recommendations of the Dr. Osho were contraindicated by evidence. And a further 40% had no evidence whatsoever to back up the claims. So, uh, you know, he's out there blustering about challenging Dr. Fauci to uh, a debate. I think this is nonsense. I mean, you know, he would be certainly outgunned by Fauci's science. But anyway, I, it, you know, it, it just doesn't pay to get into those kind of uh, debates. I mean, Oz can't hold a candle to Fauci's uh, accomplishments. I mean, he has his own accomplishments, certainly in cardiac surgery, but, but that has nothing to do with this particular uh, area. Uh, now, it's... I don't take great pleasure in seeing Dr. Oz, you know, go down this rabbit hole and uh, degenerate into, you know, a a pseudoscience promoter and, you know, uh, getting, trying to get into politics and and jumping, you know, uh, on the right wing bandwagon and promoting conspiracy uh, theories. The reason I don't take great joy in that is because when he first started out, he did some very good things. You know, he was talking uh, about eating diets that were mostly plant-based. He talked about exercise. Uh, He even described certain medical conditions. I mean, I remember once he had a big mock-up of a lung and he walked uh, through it. uh, And, you know, he pointed out uh, the various features of the lungs and also similarly with the heart, that was very good. But then uh, he got into all of the pseudoscience, and it's really too bad because he could have done so much good uh, from the pulpit, pulpit, which he was, you know, given by Oprah, and he has very, very big viewership. Well, of course, his, his TV show is not on anymore because he has given it up to get into to, to politics. But he could have really done a, a great deal of, uh, of, you know, a good. Unfortunately, he. He hasn't. Anyway, so that is my take on um, on Dr. Oz getting into uh, politics. Uh, as, as you probably know, he's going to run for Senate from uh, Pennsylvania, which is another bizarre thing because he doesn't live in Pennsylvania. And uh, according to uh, U.S. law, you uh, all that is required is to have some sort of temporary address in the state where you're going to run. You don't have to permanently live there. And I guess he chose Pennsylvania thinking that he's he's got a chance there. Uh, so it's going to be very interesting to see how this, uh, you know, uh, evolves. And uh, we'll keep an eye on it. But it's, it's kind of, you know, sad to see someone who was uh, a highly respected cardiac surgeon, published papers, uh, even invented some sort of, of, of device used in cardiac surgery, uh, and now, uh, you know, just propounding all of these, you know, conspiracy uh, theories. 
All right. Uh, we'll see if um, after the news we get some answers to my questions about uh, the name of penicillin, where it comes from, and about which chemicals have to be mixed together in a, a self-heating can. But right now, we're going to take a look at what's out there in the news, and we'll check in with uh, CTV. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. All right, let's go to Antonio, who may have an answer to my question. Antonio. Hi, Dr. Joe. First time caller. How are you? Oh, welcome aboard. Always enjoy your show. Um, I, you know, I, I know this answer because I, I tried to I tried importing a product from Italy a little over a decade ago. It was um, sodium hydroxide with water, HTO, that created this reaction and heated up. And uh, so we were having, a, I was trying to import these espresso coffees, which heated up instantaneously. There's a little barrier, which you, had, you know, which you popped, and then the uh, sodium hydroxide entered the water and created this reaction, you had to shake it for, uh, for a few minutes, like create that reaction, and you'd have a hot espresso in your hand. Yeah, but I don't think it was sodium hydroxide. Chloride? No. Sodium No, which one was it then? Fluoride? No, it, it, it would have been calcium oxide. Calcium, sorry, work. yes, and then there was the calcium fluoride, which was the cold one, exactly. It's You're calcium right. oxide, and water, it forms calcium hydroxide, and that's a very exothermic reaction, which means it releases heat. So in, the, in one compartment, you have the calcium oxide, and the other, you have water. When you press the button, they, the two mix, and that generates uh, the heat. And what is the uh, one that generates the cold, Dr. Joe? There was one. Was it fluoride? That's, that's ammonium nitrate. Ammonium, ammonium nitrate, nitrate is the one that does cold. Yeah. So what, what yeah. happened with your espresso coffee? Um, the the um, Health Canada uh, had some restrictions at the time, so we were not able to, uh, to have it here. But now I know that there's another company that uh, just introduced the, a similar product uh, here in Canada. So I'm, um, we're going to see what happens now. This is a decade later. Oh, because, because I, I've looked for it in stores, and I, I haven't been able to find uh, the product in Canada. The product so at, the, at the time was called Caldo Caldo uh, from Italy, and Freddo Freddo, which is hot, hot, and uh, cold, yeah, yeah, cold. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I'll get back to you. I'll try to I'll find your email, and I'll send it to you, because it's a friend of mine that's bringing them down for a test right now. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to take a look at that. Yeah, 100%. that would be very good. I'll, I'll, I'll okay, find your email. thank you. Okay, it, well, it's a, it's, my email is simple. It's joe.schwartz at mcgill.ca. Oh, McGill, perfect. McGill, okay. we did some work with uh, some cannabis with McGill. Very good. Okay, thanks. Thank you. So All right, much. so uh, uh, we didn't quite have the answer, but but the two chemicals are indeed calcium oxide, which is also known as quicklime, and you mix quicklime with water to form calcium hydroxide, which is known as slaked lime. Slaked lime. Why? Because of the thirst of lime for water has been slaked. And you, so you get an exothermic uh, reaction. There, there's no uh, issue of contaminating the contents of the can uh, with these chemicals because, of course, they are in a separate compartment, uh, isolated from the, the ingredient. And uh, I mean, these things are, you know, made for when you're out camping or you, you know, you're out skiing, and you want to have a hot beverage. Then all you have to do is. Uh, you know, activate the can. All right. I think we also have an answer uh, from Claudette to my penicillin question. Claudette. Yes. Hi, 
Hello, good afternoon. Hi. Yeah, so I think the answer is uh, penicillin got its name from the fungus penicillin. Well, it is, but why is that fungus called penicillin? Because of the shape. Yes, and um, what what is the derivation of the word? Uh, pen, uh, I know it's penicillin. It, it comes. It actually it comes from the Latin root penicillus, which means paintbrush. And uh, right. when you take a look at the uh, mold, the penicillin mold under the microscope, it has these little uh, filaments that look like a paintbrush, and that's where oh. the name of penicillin comes from, from penicillus, okay. which in Latin means paintbrush. And okay. uh, of course, of course, uh, 1928 is when Alexander Fleming uh, accidentally noticed that this mold was killing bacteria around it. And uh, that eventually, of course, led to the use of uh, penicillin as a medication. Okay, well, thanks very much. So we got those two questions cleared away, which means that uh, I have to pose two other questions for you. What would happen if a tiny drop of olive oil is placed on a worker bee. So you're going to place a tiny drop of olive oil on a worker bee. Question is, what will that do? Next question. In 1980, a PhD student monitored the seats in a dental waiting room for several days and noted that one specific seat directly opposite the reception desk was generally avoided by women. Then over several weeks, he sprayed the seat with a tiny amount of a substance and observed that there was a marked increase in popularity by women uh, gravitating towards that seat, which would be avoided by men. What was the substance sprayed on that seat? So there are the two questions. What happens if you put a drop of olive oil on a worker bee? And what substance was sprayed on seats that attracted women and repelled men? So we're waiting to hear about that, 514-790-0800, to text your questions and comments. And someone was asking how it is that um, uh, someone who has been uh, vaccinated and you know can demonstrate this by showing a vaccine passport uh, can still spread the virus. Well, yes, it can happen uh, because it doesn't mean that the virus doesn't enter your body if you're vaccinated. It just means that your immune system hopefully is capable of uh, preventing uh, the virus from uh, replicating and triggering symptoms. But the virus is still in your body. It can be in your bronchi, it can be you know, in your throat, in your nose, and it can be expelled so that you can still infect others. So uh, getting a vaccine does not mean that you cannot be exposed to the virus and get it into your system. The vaccine just allows your immune system to generate antibodies that will hopefully prevent symptoms, but you can still infect uh, others. Anyway, uh, in terms of the the vaccine uh, passports, uh, I think there there are going to be changes uh, changes there. I, I think they already are eliminating the need to show them at the big box stores. 
Uh, I'm not sure what uh, it is going to be at the Bell Center, uh, but um, the, the next game they're going to allow, uh, I guess, 50 percent. So it's uh, you know going to be what 10, 11,000 people. I don't know if they're going to have to show uh, the passport at, at the the Bell Center. Uh, they're also uh, eliminating the requirement to have a, a PCR test if you are traveling and are going to return to Canada. Uh, but I think that you will still have to uh, show an antigen test. That is, you know, one of the rap- rapid tests. To uh, so the things are are are, are changing uh, and. Um, Hopefully, we're starting to climb out of this. I mean, we're not going to totally climb out. Uh, you know, I mean, this virus is and 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 its variants are not disappearing, uh, just like you know the the flu virus has never disappeared. But you know, the expression that we hear over and over again is that we have to learn to live with it. Well, we're trying to do that, but uh, you know, uh, we also have to keep in mind that you know that's a ni- nice expression, trying to learn to live with it. But there are still people who are dying uh, because of this this virus, and uh, you know it's the numbers still are, are discomforting. I mean, uh, uh, like today there were twelve people in Quebec who died from uh, from the infection. Uh, hospitalizations luckily are are trending downward, so that's uh, that's good to see. Uh, I, I think it's a mistake to think that that you know everything is is you know on its way back to being totally normal. It's it's going to be a long time, if if ever, until we get back to the situation that that you know we used to have. I mean, this is we're all going to have to be dealing with some aspect of this you know virus for for a long time. But uh, obviously, you know, we can't become hermits. Uh, we can't live in, in total uh, isolation. And, uh, you know, sometimes you have to take risks. Life is all about taking intelligent risks. All right, you're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figure it Okay, we're going to do some kitchen science in a minute. Uh, we're going to talk about French fries. But before that, I think Anthony has a question. Hello? Yes, go ahead. Dr. Joe, okay, Dr. Joe, it's a small question. I have a box of chocolates that expired five months ago. Part of mm-hmm. gold. Now, I open them. I never really eat things past expired date, but I open them. They taste okay. Yes, I think there's a good chance they are okay. The expiratory date is often misinterpreted. The expiratory date does not mean that it becomes toxic, you know, at midnight of that day. It just means that it is not as fresh as it could be, and it may have an altered smell, an altered taste. Chocolates will be good long, long after the expiratory date, although you may see uh, sort of a whitish bloom, as we call it, on the surface of the chocolate as, as the fat and sugar starts coming out of the chocolate. But, but uh, uh, the expiratory date does not mean that, that it cannot be consumed after that date. Well, it's, the not, same thing it's could, not whitish. It's not whitish okay. or anything. The taste I would have no a, problem with that. The taste could be a little better. It's almost, almost as good as, as new. Yeah, I would have no issue with that. I would eat it. 
Okay, Dr. Dr. Joe, I thank you. Have a wonderful weekend. If you don't want it, I'll take it. Well, I'll take it. I I already tried them. Thank you anyways, Dr. Joe. Okay. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye. Right. Um, Yeah, all right. Let's talk French fries. And uh, what is the best way to to make them? And I, I'll tell you that I, I've uh, not only given this a lot of thought, but I've also given it some experiments. Uh, we've had uh, students try different uh, ways of making French fries. Um, and uh, my take on it is that you double fry them in olive oil. Now, I, I mean, obviously, I'm very aware of the fact that we're not going to categorize French fries as health food. Uh, but I, I do, you know, occasionally uh, enjoy them. Uh, and if I'm going to indulge in them, then I want them to be good. Uh, I mean, I used to when, uh, you know, years ago, uh, I, I used to love the, the the fries at Harvey's, I must say, until they then switched to frozen fries. Uh, but uh, today, I mean, there, you know, there are some Places around Montreal that have outstanding fries, I think. Uh, uh, La Fleur's has very good fries. The Orange Julep has very good fries. Uh, uh, Schwartz's has very good fries. Uh, so does uh, Snowden Deli. So there are, there are places, of course, with very, very good fries. But, but you can make some excellent ones at home. But uh, it, you know, it, it takes a little bit of experimentation on, on how to do this. And there are, there are many issues in, involved, you know, before you start dumping your potatoes into, into hot oil and things to think about. I mean, obviously, you know, we're not talking health here. Now, when the, uh, when the oil uh, that we use is, is processed, and all oils are processed because people don't want oils that are colored or that, you know, have off smells and off taste. So there's a lot of purification that is involved and also a process known as deodorization where the uh, oil is heated under vacuum, a steam is passed through it, and that that causes the volatile components to be uh, eliminated, to evaporate. And uh, that, of course, changes the color and the taste of the oil and, and, and essentially removes most of the, of the taste. There's also something called bleaching because natural oils can be colored, uh, for example, with beta carotene. And uh, a lot of people don't want colored, you know, oils. And by passing it through activated carbon or, or a special type of clay, uh, you can remove this. Now, the issue here is that when you treat the oil uh, under high temperatures during that deodorization process, as you might expect, you do initiate some chemical reactions. Uh, Heat usually enhances chemical reactions that that can occur. And um, when you heat up oils to the temperatures needed to remove these volatile uh, odors, you generate some byproducts. And uh, I mean, I don't want to scare you with the chemical names here, but we form some glycidyl esters as well as some uh, three monochloro, one, two propane diol esters. That's a mouthful. And you probably don't want too many of those in your mouth uh, because what happens is that in the body, uh, they get metabolized and they form derivatives called glycidol and three monochloro propane diol. And the trouble is that based on animal studies, these have been classified by the International Agency for Research on Cancer as possibly carcinogenic to humans 
And the, the latter one is probably carcinogenic to humans. And of course, this is not comforting. But it is also very important to understand that this classification by IARC is based on hazard, not on risk. And that's not the same thing because hazard is just the potential of a substance to do harm. Risk is a measure of whether or not under a specific condition uh, there, there is risk. So yes, some of these compounds that I mentioned, like the three-monochloropropane diol, when you give it to animals in large doses, they can trigger cancer. But that doesn't mean that in the trace amounts we're exposed to in an oil, it is a problem. But we're not absolutely sure about that because the question is, what happens if you're exposed to those trace amounts over many, many, uh, many years? Uh, it's almost impossible to uh, to know. There, Then there are compounds that form from the fat in the oil itself when you heat the oil at, in home cooking. And some of these are flavorful, like 2,4-decadienyl. This is a compound that forms when one of the fatty acids, linoleic acid, that is found in, in many, many oils breaks down. And it is very flavorful. But again, this is one of those compounds that when you give it to animals in high doses, it can trigger toxic reactions. So we'd rather not have it in there. So if you don't want to have it in there, you want to have a fat that contains very little of the precursor, that is the linoleic acid that can give rise to this compound. Oleic acid is such a fatty acid. This is the one that is found in olive oil. It is what we call a monounsaturated fat. And these don't tend to undergo what we call oxidation reactions that produce the 2,4-decadienyl, for example, that is, you know, in animals is, is potentially uh, uh, toxic. So uh, olive oil, I like for that reason. And also olive oil is rich in antioxidants, which of course further reduces the chance that these oxidized products, like the one I talked about, are going to form. And yet there's another benefit. Olive oil has a high smoke point. And when an oil begins to smoke, it releases acrolein. And uh, that happens when glycerol uh, in, in the oil gets overheated and breaks down and it has a piercing acrid smell. And it's a very strong respiratory tract irritant. So we want to avoid that. All right. So let's finish off here by my conclusions about making the French fries. And this come out of a lot of experiments. First, you want to soak the potatoes in cold water because that will remove any starch on the surface. And that starch would very quickly caramelize and turn brown uh, before the inside of the French fry is cooked. So soak them and then dry them for a few minutes and then put them in hot oil at 160 degrees. And you need an oil thermometer to do that. You will see some, quote, boiling. That's the water that is being released from the potato as it turns into steam. And at that temperature, the interior cooks without too much browning of the surface. And also at the same time, the granules of starch in the potato begin to release their contents, their starch molecules, and that, when they cool down, forms a, a gel-like coating on the potato that prevents oil from soaking into it when you're going to reheat it, refry it. And the second frying is really the key. And that should be at a temperature of about 190 degrees. At that temperature, the gel turns into a thick crust 
And at the same time, you develop these colorful, flavorful compounds uh, that are formed from something called the Maillard reaction between protein residues and decomposition products of starch. Go ahead, practice that. Don't do it too often because you know we don't want to eat fried foods that, that often. Uh, but it's an interesting chemical experiment on how you can make the best possible French fries. All right, bon appetit. And we have run out of time, but we will, of course, be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.